Our scripture text comes from the book of James, chapter 5, beginning in verse 13 and through verse 20. And the title to this message is Sin and Sickness. Sin and Sickness. Verse 13. Is anyone among you suffering? Let him pray. Is anyone cheerful? Let him sing psalms. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man avails much. Elijah was a man with a nature like ours, and he prayed earnestly that it would not rain, and it did not rain on the land for three years and six months. And he prayed again, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its fruit. Brethren, if anyone among you wanders from the truth, and someone turns him back, let him know that he who turned a sinner from the error of his way will save a soul from death and cover a multitude of sins. As we consider the words of this passage, we've encountered some instructions here that are both difficult and they are demanding. Words that most preachers seem often to intentionally pass right on by. I mentioned to you that I do believe that we should go verse by verse. And so we can't pass by these verses without speaking about them. Why would preachers intentionally pass right on by some of these passages, some of these words? It's often because they seem to think that their congregation would want them to do exactly that, to quickly pass on by these words because they're not comfortable to consider or to do. But we really must not do that with God's precious word. All of his instructions and his truths are good. And so while I don't presume to know all of God's intentions for these words, and I also recognize that we as a church will probably be reluctant to put some of these teachings into practice, we really nevertheless must go ahead and deal with these words of truth. So then, may we begin with a question. How willing would each of us be to bear our sinful soul and our conscience before other brethren within the church? Because as we have just read, there are times and there are circumstances when God recommends that we do exactly that, to confess some of our most difficult of besetting sins. The word besetting is that kind of sin that doesn't seem to go away. We can stumble into certain sins, but besetting sins are those that are hard to deal with and don't seem to go away very easily. But it's difficult for us to confess some of those besetting sins before our brothers and sisters in Christ and then ask them to pray fervently as these scriptures are telling us that we'll be forgiven of those sins and we'll be set free from the power and the control of those sins, the power and control that they have over our behaviors and even over our health. Again, this truly is a difficult and demanding passage. Here also, God has deliberately intermingled this factor of sin 
into the equation of sickness and illness and disease, inferring that there are times and circumstances when our sicknesses are directly or indirectly related to or even caused by our sinful behavior. But as we know, it's not comfortable to us as a culture of people to link these two together, to admit that our behavior causes some of our bad health, that sin and sickness can and do often come out from the same source. But in his omniscient understanding, God knew that these days would come when we as a society would be reticent to call sin and sin's effects sin, that we would find ways to dress up some of our most besetting of sins in other clothing and call them something that will look better to us and to our friends. And our culture has done exactly that with some of what I will, for our purposes today, call willfully chosen habits and behaviors and addictions. The most common being the misuse of drugs and alcohol. And yes, there are also a myriad of other willfully chosen behaviors that also can cause disease and sickness within our bodies, especially those involving sexual sins, causing venereal disease and AIDS and the like. And yes, the lingering effects of so many of those sicknesses will also cause broken relationships, broken homes, broken families. But clearly, within these scriptures before us today, and many other scriptures like them, God is telling us that we should not hide our sins behind some more acceptable disguise, such as the word sickness or illness or disease. That no matter how we try to make sin look better, sin really is still sin. And we need to treat it as such. But again, over these recent several decades, there has been ever-increasing insistence from those people and those organizations that shape the voice of our culture, that we intentionally label some of our willfully chosen behaviors using these other names, illness and sickness and disease, and that we remove any and all stigma of wrongness or what we Christians call sin from them and from their treatments. Simply put, the voice of our culture insists that these two elements, sin and sickness, not be directly related. And again, that's true whether a person's illness be physical or emotional or mental. Our cultural leaders demand that all these willfully chosen health conditions be called illnesses and disease and sickness and that their causes be attributed to the person's circumstances with no personal accountability being attributed to the person's behavior. Now, with all that being said, may I quickly affirm that by far most all of our sicknesses and illnesses and diseases that we endure come through other sources, other than sinful behavior, sources such as injuries or diseases that are passed on through contagions like the virus that we're dealing with even right now and other forms of, of germs. And then also, many of our sicknesses come to us through genetic predispositions. And God does deal with all of those sicknesses and diseases right here within these words. With myself and my family, my mother and two sisters 
all got cancer. And I have fully expected at any time for myself to be diagnosed with cancer. It's the way of that kind of disease. It comes in through our DNA. But my father had another kind of what today's diagnosticians call a disease. My dad was an alcoholic. And please understand that I don't share these words about my father to dishonor him. I do not want to dishonor him in any way. But I simply want to give this information as truthful facts about him for this scripture that we're discussing today. Again, he was an alcoholic. And his form of alcoholism was of a particularly difficult kind. Because with only one drink, one drink of alcohol, he would seemingly lose all of his ability to control his anger. And he would become violent and dangerous. When he didn't drink... My dad behaved in ordinary ways. He did good things, right things with his family, with his friends. But once he chose to take even one drink, everything seemed to go wrong. His mental and his emotional faculties would change, and he'd become like a different person. And as a result, he spent several years in prison for the deeds that he did while under the influence of alcohol. Now the question again, using only the truths that we read within these scriptures. Was my dad's problem a disease or was it sin? Or was it perhaps both of those factors working together to produce our own behavior? Again, using only the tenets of these scriptures, it seems to be most plausible that a combination of those two, disease and sin, were involved. A combination. Sin being the first step My dad willfully drinking alcohol when he knew that it would bring about a wrong behavior. And then the physical and emotional effects brought on by some defect in his DNA that produced this perfect storm and then brought about a very, very difficult life for him as well as for all of us and his family. Sinful behavior, when combined with physical and emotional and mental problems can cause most any person to do things that they should not do. May I pause for a moment and remind us again of some of the truths that we're examining here today. Verse 15 and 16. And the prayer of faith will save the sick and the Lord will raise him up. And if he has committed sins, he will be forgiven. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Notice how God uses the word healed when he's talking about sin. Listen to this verse again. Confess your trespasses to one another and pray for one another that you may be healed. The effective, fervent prayer of a righteous man availeth much. Then in verse 19, My brothers, if anyone among you wanders from the truth and someone brings him back, let him know that whoever brings back a sinner from his wandering will save his soul from death and will cover a multitude of sins. Now, please know that it is not my intent to cast undue doubt on the diagnoses of our medical professionals regarding health difficulties and of the people that that they serve. Whatever their suffering be, whether it be physical or emotional or mental, my hope instead is that we would understand that God is telling us in these words that the two, that sin and sickness, are sometimes, perhaps more often than we would like to admit, they're related and they have connected causes. 
and that we really do need to deal with the whole problem. That if there is sin involved, we must also deal with that sin. But again, those people who shape the ideas and the philosophies and are the voice of our culture today, including many within organized churches, seem more and more to be insisting that we believe and accept that physical and emotional sickness and matters of moral behavior, sin, are not related and that they must be kept separate and apart from one another in our thinking. Now, I confess that I know very little about that portion of the healthcare industry that deals with emotional and mental illness. But I do know that those professionals adamantly insist that no stigma of sin or guilt ever be associated with their patients' difficulties. Let me say that again. The professionals insist that we not tell them that their problems also have sin involved and that there really is some guilt that they're feeling because of that sin, because the Holy Spirit is the one that gives them that guilt. But we're not allowed to say that in their view. It's one of those protected grounds that even our churches are more and more often being prohibited from encroaching upon. But for today, may I at least speak about some of the most obvious of the willfully chosen disorders that our culture commonly calls illness or disease, that of alcoholism and drug addiction. And it seems that the primary reason for our culture's insistence on those monikers is to minimize that guilt experience by the one who is said to be sick. Guilt is seen as something that they want their patients to be delivered from. They don't realize that you're only delivered from guilt through repentance. They just don't want us to talk about it so that their patients would not feel guilt. Now, over recent years, our government has also joined in with the culture, and they passed so many stringent laws that require us as individuals, and especially businesses. They require businesses to call those willfully chosen behaviors, illnesses, and diseases. I know that because I had to live by the, the federal and state laws regarding this in my supervision of employees. And by the way, unfortunately for some of us common folks, like you and me, we also accept these notions, especially when it has to do with us personally or with someone that we love, our spouse, our children, or our grandchildren. But again, it seems from these words of Scripture that God has given us today that He would have us, His believing children, to take a biblical view, not a governmental view, not a legal view, but a biblical view of those kinds of illnesses and diseases, and to respond to them from the view given by God here in these scriptures. With that being said, what do we do? Again, the most obvious connections can be made to those willfully chosen kinds of lifestyles where bad habits show their evidence. The ashen pallor of a drug addict or an alcoholic, that cold absence of life and absence of purpose in their eyes, their sometimes frenzied, sometimes sluggish mannerisms, their disobedient and argumentative responses. They all speak a loud message of slow destruction taking place within their hearts and minds, their sinful behaviors having wrought great affliction and sickness in their physical and emotional lives. Again, 
as with my father. He not only was addicted to alcohol, but with the science that we've recently learned about DNA, it seems clear that his predisposition towards alcoholism also contained within it a condition in which the chemicals within one drink of alcohol would trigger another predisposition, one towards anger and violence, the one precipitating the other. And folks, I believe that I also have that same predisposition passed along to me from my dad's. So my personal response must be, and has been, that I must not drink even one drink of alcohol. Other people can, and it does not malaffect them. But I believe that I must not drink even one drink of alcohol. And under those circumstances, I'm convinced that if I willfully and carelessly choose to drink, it's a sinful behavior on my part. And yes, it would be called legalistic by some people. But be that as it may, these scriptures tell me clearly that if I believe some behavior to be sin to me, and I still do it, then I have sinned. Those very words, by the way, are in Romans 14, 23. Thinking back on my years in the ministry at French camp, I have known so many students who've endured daily emotional suffering through no fault or no sin of their own, but because their parents were regular abusers of drugs and alcohol. And also I've known of other students who through no fault or sin of their own have endured daily emotional suffering brought about by sexual abuse that came from within their own families. So then for myself, I must conclude that contrary to the teachings, to the voice of this culture, sin and sickness may sometimes, even often, be very related, either directly or indirectly. And in order to begin to comfort and to cure some of those people affected, sin must be pulled out from its hiding place and dealt with. And here in these words, God reduces some of the cure and the treatment for these problems down to a few simple measures. He doesn't tell us to go into all the world and make all those people quit doing all those wrong things. He does not tell us that, no. He tells us instead to begin simply and personally with faith. With faith and with prayer, and especially within our churches within our churches. And yes, I know that many, many who hear these words will protest and argue that the problems just aren't that simple. But folks, it has to begin somewhere. And God's truth in these scriptures is the best place to start. His remedy begins with our coming to his healing fountain of Christ in surrender. And there he'll begin to work his cure in us both for the pain and the suffering, and also for the washing away of the sins that are causing our problems. That's what he tells us in these words. And yes, it will often involve a long and drawn out over and over surrender, both for the ones who are suffering from those sinful behaviors and also for the families who love them. But this truly is the place to begin. We must as individuals and as a church set aside all our usual propensity to be judgmental. We tend to have an opinion about everything. And too often in matters like this, we have an opinion that's judgmental. And we need to set aside that propensity 
to be judgmental and instead replace that attitude with a humility, fervent prayer for the healing of those who are suffering. And when the problem is within our own body, within our own soul, we must begin by recognizing our own wretched sinfulness and the sickness that it might be causing within us. And we must seek for and we must depend upon prayerful intercession from our brethren within the congregation. And yes, that can potentially be embarrassing to those of us who desire to keep our sins very private. Public confession of sin is a nearly impossible thing for most of us to do. But again, if healing is to take place, biblical suffering will also need to take place. This is what a church, a body of believers like ours should be all about, restoring and reconciling broken souls back to Christ. My time is ending, and so I'll close for now. We'll talk about this some more next week. Again, yes, this passage of Scripture is ever so difficult, but God really will be generous to anyone who obeys His command. Consider these words from Psalm 19 as we close. It was good for me to be afflicted, O God, so that I might learn your decrees. Let's pray. 